0: Chaos Monkeys is a book about Silicon Valley startups and Facebook. It is one of the most accurate books written about the modern technology industry, even if it isn't exactly accurate on all the facts therein. It does capture both the negatives and the positives of software companies. It captures the zeitgeist of Silicon Valley in its modern form. Antonio Garcia Martinez is the author of Chaos Monkeys, He wrote the book after going through a gauntlet of prototypical Silicon Valley experiences. Antonio founded an ad tech company called Adgrok. His company was funded by the startup accelerator Y Combinator, and during his time at the company, there were many dramatic events that Antonio tells in great detail. Adgrok was acquired by Twitter, and Antonio went on to work at Facebook on its ads platform. Antonio is a fantastic writer, and what makes Chaos Monkeys special is that it reads like a book written by an author who found himself in a technology career, rather than a technologist who opportunistically wrote a book. I hope Antonio writes another book in the future, because Chaos Monkeys was quite a treat to read, and I really recommend it to anybody in the audience. Also, a quick note to the listeners, this episode contains some explicit language, and we're leaving it in because it's colorful and adds to the episode but if you have sensitive ears or if you're listening with children be forewarned that there is just some sensitive language curse words nothing beyond that if you're building a software project post it on findcollabs findcollabs is the company i'm working on it's a place to find collaborators for your software projects we integrate with GitHub and make it easy for you to collaborate with others on your open source projects and find people to work with who have shared interests so that you can actually build software with other people rather than building your software by yourself. FindCollabs is not only for open source software. It's also a great place to collaborate with other people on low-code or no-code projects or find a side project if you're a product manager or somebody who doesn't like to write code. Check it out at findcollabs.com. This podcast is brought to you by PagerDuty. You've probably heard of PagerDuty. Teams trust PagerDuty to help them deliver high-quality digital experiences to their customers. With PagerDuty, teams spend less time reacting to incidents and more time building software. Over 12,000 businesses rely on PagerDuty to identify issues and opportunities in real time and bring together the right people to fix problems faster and prevent those problems from happening again. PagerDuty helps your company's digital operations run more smoothly. PagerDuty helps you intelligently pinpoint issues like outages as well as capitalize on opportunities, empowering teams to take the right Real time action. To see how companies like GE, Vodafone, Box, and American Eagle rely on PagerDuty to continuously improve their digital operations, visit pagerduty.com. I'm really happy to have PagerDuty as a sponsor. I first heard about them on a podcast probably more than five years ago, and so it's quite satisfying to have them on Software Engineering Daily as a sponsor. I've been hearing about their product for many years and I hope you check it out at PagerDuty.com. Antonio Garcia Martinez, welcome to Software Engineering Daily.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: You're the author of Chaos Monkeys, which is a book that I really enjoyed. It's a book in which you document the process of starting a company and eventually getting acquired and going to work at Facebook. What are the elements of Silicon Valley that you captured in Chaos Monkeys that had not been captured before that book?
1: I mean, this is going to sound very immodest, but I I think most of them, (laughs) to be quite honest, right? I guess one of the weird untalked about things about Silicon Valley is that there is a sort of code of silence around talking about the inside of it, right? There's so much boosterism inside the industry, and I think there's such an opportunity cost to pissing people off or kind of breaking that code of silence that it's rare for someone to write... I hate using that term tell-all because it sounds like very tabloidy, but a sort of unvarnished version of the reality, which is not necessarily, doesn't necessarily mean that it's gossipy and lurid and whatever. It just means that you're not trying to convey a certain image and or be a thought leader. You're just in a very realistic way telling exactly how things go down, right? And I think it's hard to, you have to go way back until you find, I think, a book comparable in which an insider basically just spilled the beans. I think uh, the last one I can think of is... Startup by Jerry Kaplan that came out in the late 90s, which is like ancient history and probably close to the birth date of some of your listeners, which makes me feel old. But that book still feels very dated, but I think it's still it's still a good book. And in many ways what I tried to do with Chaos Monkeys was, you know, try to extract the general lesson from the very particular thing that was going on with me. And you know, I should be clear, I, I didn't have that spectacular career or anything. I just think I was very emblematic of a general class of phenomenon, right? Like you yeah, went through Y Combinator, had a pile of problems, got sued, couldn't raise money, raised money, co-founder issues, and then had your classic aqua hire, which for those who don't know, it's when you get acquired, but really it's just a juicy hiring package. It's kind of a failure to be honest, right? The fact that most acquihires are basically failures is, again, one of those unacknowledged truths that everyone knows, but no one really says out loud because everyone kind of wants to paint it like a success, but it's not really true. That wasn't the goal of the company when you were raising money, right? And then transitioning as a relatively early employee on the Facebook ads team and seeing what that was like before, during, and after the IPO, I think was also another very emblematic experience. And so, yeah, I think I... In And sometimes you want to look at, if you want to take the entirety of Silicon Valley as like the lifetime of a company, I think I captured the very early stages, like the seed stage, right? A little bit of the early stage acquisition stuff. And then somehow I just teleport to the IPO, right? And if there's anything I sort of fear that I missed was that sort of middle stage of scaling the company because the companies in which I was in a mid-level startup, you know, never quite got to the IPO stage. And so in some sense, I showed very much the, the early part and the last part of sort of the company entrepreneurship cycle, yeah.
0: There's some comparison to be drawn between Chaos Monkeys and Liar's Poker.
1: Yes, that's such a flattering comparison. But yes, I thank you for the comparison. (laughs) I think
0: it's a a fair one. And one point of comparison that I'm curious about is one thing that was funny about Liar's Poker is he wrote it as a critique of finance and other people treated it as a treatise of why you should get into finance, which is this really bizarre outcome. Do you know if Chaos Monkeys had that same effect?
1: Oh, yeah. No, no, it did. It absolutely did. So for your listeners that don't know, because again, it might be slightly ancient history. So Liar's Poker was Michael Lewis's first book, right? Michael Lewis, famous guy from Moneyball and The Big Short and all the rest of it. But his first book was this heavily autobiographical, kind of gonzo, satirical take of the mortgage markets in the 80s like the first credit crisis right before the the current one that I was had a some very small role in and yeah and exactly as you said Michael Lewis in interviews has said that what he wrote as a sort of a cautionary tale became the sort of siren song for a generation of Wall Streeters including me by the way so I dropped out of a PhD in physics at Berkeley because I read liars poker right which is like the gateway drug to finance and I, I suppose Michael Lewis at least in his less cynical, you know, moments was thinking this will scare them away. And of course I read it and like, yes, I want this. I want the human piranha, right? The fucking frogs are going to fucking get fucked. Like literally every other word of fuck is like, yes, I want to see this. And coming from the, shall we say rather a FET world of, you know, science academia, that seemed like a refreshing change. And so, you know, I partly quit the PhD and went to Goldman to work as a, as a credit derivatives quant because of liar's poker. And so then when it was my turn to, write the book. And there's a chapter in Chaos Monkeys, by the way, that's about what it was like working at, at Goldman Sachs during the, the credit crunch as sort of a transitional thing and as a sort of intertextual homage, indeed, to Liar's Poker, right? But yeah, no, I, I think it did, right? Because it's funny, I, you know, I don't get like recognized often, right? I think my audience is very much probably heavy overlap with your audience of being, you know, SF geeks and, and all that. The, the only time they've ever been recognized like on the street is in San Francisco, right? Nobody, nowhere else, right? That the writer's fantasy of meeting that attractive stranger on the subway, reading your book to which you casually introduce yourself and then you go discuss your book over, you know, glasses of wine, that never happens, right? Okay, there's always book two. <laughs> right, there's always book two, I <laughs> hope always dies last. What actually happens is you're running through South Park here in Soma, late for a meeting or something, and some dude is like walking behind you and you look around like, dude, what are you, who are you? It's like, uh, are you Antonio Garcia? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah. Why? It's like, well, so, you know, I got an offer from Facebook and so I bought your book and read it and now I'm totally excited to go work there. <laughs> I'm like, all right, man, I, you know, best of luck. I hope, I hope you enjoy working for Zach. <laughs> so yeah, know I think to a certain degree it did have that effect. Yeah.
0: There are places in chaos monkeys where you admit to deceiving other people yeah there's there's like a deceit and and you admit to your slight dishonesty and when i was reading the book i wondered is he a reliable narrator and what i wondered is is like are you only lying to people in the book or or does i mean is are you a trustworthy narrator like to to what extent are you a reliable
1: narrator I mean, I put it the other way. If I hadn't said I was lying, would I be a trustworthy (laughs) narrator, right? Because there's multiple levels of deceit that happens within a startup, particularly when it comes down to the nitty-gritty of doing a deal, right? The investors will lie to you. You know, the M&A, God, what's it called? I've already forgotten. The corporate, the team that actually buys companies inside Facebook, whatever it's called. Anyhow, it's some other, you know, business ease euphemism. Anyhow, they lie to you, right? So, no, I... (laughs) I think it's generally, so the other question people usually ask me first, right, particularly in this book is like, what was the reaction of people in the book? Have you been blackballed from the tech world? Like, what was the reaction, right? And in some sense, you know, those are the people who actually participated. My co-founders were mentioned in the book and have a big presence. Like, I name all the names. Like, I don't use, I only use pseudonyms for some of the personal relations I have. But everybody else, I use their real names. And so the general reaction has actually been surprisingly positive. Of course, if they really thought I was an asshole, they probably wouldn't have reached out to me. So it might be a biased sample. But I think most of the people I've talked to were like, "Well." It's obviously a heavily satirical, very Antonio take on things, but like, it wasn't totally wrong. I mean, it was ba- the flavor of what you got it was right. Like it was an incomplete picture. And I, and I, and I say that, right? Like, look, this isn't fact check reportage, right? This is first person memoir, which has pluses and minuses. The pluses are, you get one person's very personal experience of it. The minuses are, you know, I didn't interview my co-founders to get their viewpoints of what they thought or anything. I had to speculate, right? And so that's the downside. But, I, I, yeah, I mean, I think it's as true as any one man's experience of anything can be. You know, it's funny when you go back and reconstruct history, like there's a certain, you know, workaday assembly of facts you have to do, right? Which these days is... Either easier or harder, depending how you look at it. Obviously, I had you know reams of email and texts and messages and whatever to go on to reconstruct history. And mind you, I was writing this book a couple of years after most of the events were portrayed. Right, so human memory is very fallible. So you go back and you you think, oh, events happened in orders, you know, A, B, and C, and it turns out it was B, A, and then C never happened. Or C was actually a conflation of D, E, and F, which you kind of have forgot about, right? And so I spent like two weeks going back and filling like the longest Evernote note ever with just every day for like three years and what happened there to try to reconstruct the narrative in a very concrete way. And so I, you know, I, I think in terms of things actually happening in the order that they did happen, I think I, I probably did get it down. But again, it's very much one person's POV. And I, there's definitely been feedback from other people that are like, I mean, yeah. I mean, I could see how you would look at it that way. But in fact, all these other things were going on that you didn't see. And it's like, you know, I grant you that. It's true. Like, I I didn't interview any of the people in the book for it. Well, it's not totally true. I probably spoke to one or two people. But I I didn't sit down and try to reconstruct a narrative as a reporter would do. And so, yeah, it's it's necessarily flawed in that regard. But I think you gained something in the first-person memoir at the same time, right?
0: Had there been specific areas of the book where other people have said, hey, you memorialized this incorrectly.
1: The one that comes to mind is when the company actually got sold. So spoiler alert or whatever, right? But at the end of the aqua hire thing, the acquire was ongoing. And this happens more often than people actually admit. But often, when a company obviously tries to create an auction, right? And you company A expresses an interest. Company B that you've had in the back burner, you kind of restart that. And then in, out of nowhere, you manage to provoke company C into appearing. right? Everyone interviews with everybody. And again, because these aren't really, you're not really buying the corporate entity, you're buying a set of people, right? And sometimes not all the people make the cut. And so very aggressive companies, Facebook, for example, will look at, you know, founders one, two, three and say, hey, we we like one. We sort of like two and we don't like three at all. We'll make this offer for one and two or maybe just one. And, you know, you guys figure it out which is kind of a dickish thing to do, but it's it's surprisingly common. People just don't talk about it. And so that happened to us. I mean, as I say in the book, for whatever reason, and I, I don't think this is a global statement, but for whatever reason, Facebook really liked me and wasn't interested in the rest of the company. Twitter liked the entire company. And so it was a strange thing. And that I, at the time, one of the, <laughs> one of the few good calls I've ever made in technology was that like Facebook would go on. Now it seems like a foregone conclusion. Okay, but this is five or six years ago when Facebook taking over the universe hadn't really happened yet, right? People still thought I was going to die like MySpace. But I, to me, it seemed pretty clear that Facebook was set for world domination. Twitter was not, right? And I, they gave me a decent, not outrageous offer. And I was just convinced I had to go to Facebook for whatever reason. And so I was trying to arrange it such that Twitter could buy, you know, the other founders in the company and I would go to this other company based on a precedent of another YC company that I mentioned by name in the book that had also done the same thing. So, and again, these things aren't that rare. They tend to happen fairly often. People just don't talk about it because it's kind of ugly. And so, anyway, I tried to story that along as as far as I could, but then at some point I had to recuse myself from the Twitter side of the deal because basically I was effectively on track to become a Facebook employee and their competitors and all sorts of things. And so I think I skipped over a lot of the, I think my founders actually had a harder time than I thought to actually get the company soul after i left. Mm-hmm. I assumed it was a slam dunk I'm like okay, we're done here. Like I'm just going to walk away. We all walk away to the companies we want. Like everything's cool. It turns out there was like a month of nail-biting left for them that I didn't realize. Mm-hmm. And of course, we, you know, we weren't on speaking terms after that for all sorts of reasons. So, corporate development. That's the name of that's the company. Bizarre. That's what it is, which funny. sounds bizarre, but that's the part of the company that buys other companies. So, yeah. the acquisition part, I think Argiris who's mentioned and we're, you know, Argiris and I are on good terms now. And we chat and stuff told me, and I, you know, I totally believe him, that I kind of glossed over that, in fact, it was very difficult so to come the company, and the deal almost fell apart various times, which would have left them in a the lurch, which would have been terrible. So I, yeah, that's that's probably wrong. I think my, my fly in the wall take on a lot of Facebook corporate strategizing, which is a big part of the second half, is probably kind of one-sided. You know, I was kind of in a lot of those Cheryl meetings and a lot of the PM meetings, but I wasn't, you know, I wasn't like a VP level person at Facebook, so I wasn't in all the meetings. Like I didn't hover, you know, the mid-level PM, the person who's actually like in the trenches building the product, they're brought into that general staff level of the company as needed, but they don't kind of live there, right? They live in the bullpen with the engineers or with other lateral, you know, lieutenants, so to speak. You're not up there with the generals. And so I think a lot of the strategizing that was probably going on behind the scenes I didn't see or know about, but obviously I didn't see the very early Facebook. Some of the objections by early Facebookers who are very jealous of the company, you know, are very protective of the company because obviously they, their own identities are understandably very wrapped up in it. Felt that I didn't portray the company's culture, how things worked that well, or at least how those things originated because I just wasn't there. You know, the feedback from, well, you can figure out who it is, but the most senior person probably mentioned in there was that, you know, it's just weird to read your book. You can't, from his point of view, I arrived late in the story and you you're kind of writing the story of Facebook as someone who arrived in like the 7th inning. It's funny though because I've actually heard from people inside the ads team now like a friend of mine that i overlap with said, recommended it to a new hire and they're like, oh no, no, that's like old Facebook. That's not relevant anymore. So, like, <laughs> okay. so, so you know, it's funny, startups are fractal, right? And like, you know, literally, sure. the, the, you know, the, the first 10 consider themselves to be early and then you get to a size of a hundred and then by the time that it's 10,000, employee a thousand is like ancient history, even though, and then at the time they didn't feel like they were early at all. So, you know, who knows what it means.
0: Modern applications are built on top of cloud platforms, open-source software, and APIs. We can easily create different environments for A-B tests and continuous delivery pipelines, and we can manage our software with configuration files rather than imperative logic. But as we have more environments and more of our software is managed through declarative configuration, we can have application sprawl. Our configuration files can drift out of date with changes in dependencies and licenses and standards. Atomist is a platform for better, safer software delivery. Atomist scans your source code to help you get a complete picture of the state of your different environments and configuration systems. Atomist can help you with the inevitable application drift, and you can find out more about how to avoid application drift by going to SoftwareEngineeringDaily.com slash Atomist. By scanning the source code of your repositories, Atomist uncovers information about your code base, which might not be obvious. You can get a free drift report and figure out how Atomist can help you solve the problems of application drift. These are things that you might be able to find out by getting a scan of your source code through Atomist. For example, can you easily identify which ports your Docker containers expose? Do you have an accurate account of how many versions of core technologies like TypeScript or Spring Boot that you're using? Do you know how many of your applications still use Java 6? Go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash Atomist to learn about Atomist and how to avoid application drift. Atomist can also help with compliance, CI/CD, dependency management, and many more parts of your application. Go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash Atomist to learn more. And thanks to Atomist for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Check it out at softwareengineeringdaily.com slash Atomist. Now, here's something that I think you captured more honestly than I think most In fact, I think any book that I've, any mainstream book that I've read has captured, although you still didn't capture it to a large degree, is the way that the ads business actually works, which is a very murky sausage factory. I mean, if people think that finance is shady, I mean, the thing is, like, there was a certain point where the smartest people they were no longer going into finance. They right. started going into ad tech. That's right. In fact, a lot of the people who were ex-finance people left for ad tech. Yeah. That's why all the biggest ad exchanges are in New York. Yeah, that's right. What are the murkiest parts of the ad industry? Yeah,
1: and it's funny you mention that. So that, that was my trajectory, right? So I spent three years at Goldman as, as pricing credit derivatives. The credit world blew up, and then I bailed for ads. And then those who maybe don't know those worlds so well Unlike you, you, usually ask, "Well, how'd you go from finance to ad?" It's like yeah. it's exactly the same. What do you mean? There's no difference whatsoever. You're turning code and data into money. There's less regulation. <laughs> well, there's exactly there's, <laughs> there's, there's there's even less regulation and less transparency, right? Then you can make as much volume as you want. Right, right. And you don't have to disclose prices. You can make up prices. I mean, it's see. So yeah, what's the sketchiest thing? I mean, broadly, and I know I'm going to sound like a fanboy saying this, even though again, like I criticize the company a lot in the book. It's odd that. Companies like Facebook and Google get so much scrutiny, when in many cases, they're the most above board when it comes to that, because they have the most to lose. And also, they have a direct relationship with the user. In my opinion, the sketchiest people in the ad tech world are companies you've never heard of that I mentioned in the book, companies like Axiom, companies like Experian that can't seem to go six months without a data leak, companies that sell your geodata from your phone that gets recycled and sold and resold without your knowing it, carriers like Comcast that sell a lot of your browsing history and your geodata. That's what I find the sketchiest stuff. The third-party data brokers, right? By third-party, I mean people who don't have a direct relationship with you. Like the fact that you don't know these companies' names mean they're a (laughs) third-party, right? I'm most wary of that. I mean, broadly, I don't know how you know philosophical we want to get here, but I think first-party data use where you have a relationship with a company, you give them data, and in exchange they give you a service, and you're, you know, you're trading off a certain amount of privacy in exchange for convenience or a sense of community or whatever. I think that's kind of a fair trade. And I think users are actually pretty good at like figuring out that trade-off where I think the pri- you know, there's a whole privacy mafia out there that wants to you know, agitate for privacy reform and privacy legislation and whatnot. You know, I often call them on, like, why do you question users' trade-offs? Like, well, because they don't know what they're doing and they don't know the dangers. I think that's true for a lot of the third parties that sell and resell your data. I think that's the murkiest world that probably should be regulated more heavily than it is, yeah. What
0: about <laughs> bot traffic? Have you gotten into that stuff much? Do you, do you have a sense for how big
1: that it's you. I mean, I I, so I don't have a lot of direct experience with that. So Facebook, one of the good things about it, because, you know, there's a whole user ops part of Facebook that basically kills fake accounts. You know, one of Facebook's innovation was having real identity on the Internet, right? Like it's ancient history. Remember back on like Usenet and forums, you know, there was no real identity. It was all typically quite anonymous. And that means that people behave like shittily to each other when they're. They've got all got masks on, right? So Facebook, and I, they're not entirely wrong here, wants you to have your real identity, one unique account, right? So they go out and they zap all the fake accounts. So by and large, Facebook, and, and because Facebook only serves the vast majority of its ads traffic on Facebook-owned properties, it doesn't actually get a lot of butt traffic or, or far less than like the wider world of the internet and mobile apps. So they don't have a lot of the issues of, you know, I'm sure you've seen these viral videos of a wall of phones in China or India or Russia, right? Where they're, like running software that has people clicking on ads and they're getting ad revenue and it's all fake, right? That wasn't really an issue at Facebook. And as a result, they weren't used to dealing with it, right? They didn't have massive anti-ads frauds teams. And in fact, if you believe the rumors, which I think are credible, they made one acquisition called LiveRail, which was a video ad exchange. And it basically imploded because the, the, the amount of fraud on there was huge. Facebook didn't know how to deal with it among other issues, and it just ended up dying. And so, yeah, I don't have a lot of direct experience with it. I mean, Facebook, in some sense, gets anti-fraud for free by having real identity, unlike most of the internet. So I never really encountered it. I mean, it's not to say it's not a real problem. It is a real problem, but I think it's a much bigger problem on the wider internet than it is. Bot traffic, and then ads code running where the the user doesn't actually see it, right? Like one ad loads, but they hit three pixels, and they charge three, like all that sketchy crap. That typically doesn't happen on Facebook, because again, Real identity is usually on there, and then they serve their own ads, right? They don't use third-party ad serving, so it's harder to cheat it. So, yeah, I'm not familiar with it, but it is a massive problem. And the problem is it's one of those problems that nobody's incentivized to fix it. Right. The only person incentivized to fix it is is the one with the least power to fix it, which is the advertiser whose dollars are being wasted, right?
0: Right. That's. I mean, that's the funny thing is you have this layer of indirection with the agencies who are actually spending the dollars of the advertiser and... I mean, that's, that's a perversion we don't really have to get into, but it's it's just funny because I asked an ad tech person about this and they were like, I don't think it really matters because it's priced in to, to the ads. I'm like, I'm not sure about that because you have this this incentive misalignment between the agencies
1: and the actual advertisers. Right. Right, it's an interesting markets question. I mean, they're right that it's priced in, right? Like... The publishers and the entire ad tech stack between the publisher and the advertiser will allow as much fraud as they can get away with, right? If the fraud were so rampant that literally ad impressions did nothing, at some point their budgets would go to zero and then they've killed the oh, cow. But don't know that.
0: With brand advertising? Like if they're doing billboards and they're yeah, doing with, like- Yeah,
1: with brand advertising, it's not necessarily true. But I, yeah, the priced-in thing, that's just a polite way of saying it's overpriced just enough. That <laughs> it's still kind of worth spending money on. Yeah, no, I, I agree. It's sketchy. I mean... Again, that's why, in many cases, Facebook, which is vertically integrated ad stack, right, is in some sense safer or more sane. I think that's part of the reason why they're so successful on mobile as well, because you have less of that bullshit sort of leaking into, into their ad stack. Yeah.
0: So you, you've given a little bit of the overview of the conditions under which you joined Facebook. When you joined it, you were working on ad products. What was your, your sense of the company when you joined? What was your sense yeah. of the the tribal ethos within the company? And did you feel like you fit in?
1: Yeah, so I'll, I'll address that two different. So one was a culture, right? And I, part of the reason what convinced me that I needed to basically bail on the deal and go to Facebook was the vibe I got from the Facebookers that I talked to and just being at the company reminded me in many ways of Goldman Sachs in a way, which I know people might have a negative connotation about it, but. Goldman Sachs, at least at the time, was the best investment bank for various reasons. And they weathered the storm for very good reasons. They had corporate values that people actually followed. It was mostly run by the partners whose net worth is all wrapped up in the company. And so there was just this feeling of, of motivation, almost a militant feeling of like, Imperial domination ambition that I kind of exuded Facebook. I there's a colorful scene that I'll mention this This is I guess not FCC regulated so I can mention it But there's a scene that for some reason stuck with a lot of people stuck with me I was interviewing right and the interview process was just like throwing you with ten different people who just sit there and torture you Right and then like you didn't get a a fancy lunch or anything right somewhere in there I had five minutes and I ran to the bathroom and this isn't Facebook's old campus not the current one Which is kind of a dump actually like ratty carpets. It smelled like it was not a nice place went to the bathroom you know, use the bathroom, whatever, two things. One, there's a guy in the toilet taking a dump coding while taking a dump on the toilet. Like I can hear him clicking. It's and a it's, good sign. Right. No, it's exactly, it's a good sign. And it's not like chatting with his girlfriend like messaging back and forth. It was obviously like, I could hear the several key macros of Emacs and shit going <laughs> on. Like the dude was actually coding while on the toilet. It's like, man, that shit is commitment. And then two, there was toothbrushes next to the sinks in the bathroom, right? And I looked in the, in the bin and there's like a bunch of them thrown over. Like people were like literally living at the office and coding while they took a dump. It's like, wow. Meanwhile, at Twitter, you know, they've had, like, three kombucha taps and, like, tasteful design furniture. And just, it was a very different vibe.
0: What are the roots of that difference?
1: You know, I don't know Twitter enough to know. I mean, I in the case of Facebook...
0: You can speak specifically about Facebook, then. I, I, I mean... Because I think most companies I, are not that
1: way. Right. You know, again, I wasn't there when it was founded. I wasn't part of that founding crew. But the vibe I got is that it was still you know, undergraduate engineers working in a dorm. That was still kind of the feeling, right? And all the good and bad that that meant. I mean, I'm sure that this is, certainly in our current environment, I'm sure they've shut a lot of this down, but every team had either a kegerator or a liquor cabinet, right? And there was a decent amount of drinking going on. You know, and there was swag from all the hackathons and everyone wore all this, you know, all this weird Facebook shit. People looked like shit all the time. A lot of people slept. I mean, I, I had a meeting with Fisher who was... David Fisher, who was Cheryl's right-hand man, head of sales, you know, an important guy, like a VP, my first VP meeting at Facebook. And of course he's in sales, so he schedules a meeting at nine in the morning, right? These are typical engineers who like stumble in at 1030, nothing happens at nine, but he wants to do it at nine. Okay. He books a conference room, go to the conference room, We look in the window and there's like four interns or something passed out in the four couches inside the conference room, like a sleep still, like at nine in the morning. We're like, uh, well, I don't think we're gonna wake him up. And so we went to a different conference room, right? So I think it just, it, it had that dorm room feel to it. I think it, it initially did and it just always maintained it. And it just never got, kind of got rid Nowadays, I, I suspect it's different, but as late as 2011, it was still that way.
0: Do you attribute any of it to the leadership?
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've totally, I mean, that company is a projection of Zuck's ego and taste and values without any question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Can you go deeper on that?
1: I mean, again, I don't, I was in a few meetings with Zuck. I don't know him well. We don't know. I don't, I don't know him personally, but from the vibe that I got from him and those around him, it's what he called the hacker ethos, right? It's, it's an improvised, all-in commitment to making sh- shit work by whatever means necessary and yeah just a very zealous commitment to the mission of the company it's a very mission-driven company it's very culty to be quite honest in many ways which is not necessarily a bad thing i think it was keith or boy who said every successful startup is a cult i think he's probably right <laughs> and facebook was certainly no exception
0: did you bear witness to any of the competitive Element like what made Facebook and Google. So such bitter competitors. What caused like what what are the roots of that competitive?
1: Yeah, you know, I I wasn't part of the the in-between company conversations with Google and Facebook I was there when Google Plus launched okay, and that's like a big chapter in the book, right? I remember that. Yeah Yeah, so everyone who was there at the time remembers that because it was it was a big deal. So Google Plus it's ancient history, but Google Plus launched. It was a competitor to Facebook, kind of looked like Facebook, prettier in some ways than Facebook, and obviously integrated tightly with all of Google services, email, search, whatever, right? So they had an obvious advantage. And just one day out of the blue, they just ship it, right? And it's like Facebook, which really hadn't had that many serious competitors, at least in the US for a while, was suddenly faced with this existential threat. And so out of the blue, Zuck sent a two all email saying, you know, meet outside the aquarium. The aquarium is this glass wall sort of conference room. He didn't really have an office, but that was his conference room where he would take meetings, meet next to the, the aquarium and for something, right? You never knew what. So would send these emails and just everyone show up. So everyone just crowded around, it's like the middle of the engineering bullpen in the, in the main building. Again, this is back before the current campus. It's kind of this dumpy old industrial building. And uh, we all gather around. And he gives this kind of rousing speech in which, you know, it's, Google Plus is launched. And we need to make Facebook the best it can possibly be to fend off this threat, right? And we're going to work on a series of initiatives. But and then he, he, you know, he's a fan of the classics, and so he cited Cato the Elder, a famous Roman statesman, who used to end all of his speeches with, this is during the Punic Wars of between Rome and the Carthaginians or Carthage, Carthago delenda est, right? Carthage must be destroyed, right? And so he he actually cited that speech and the Carthage must be destroyed thing in his speech, which totally roused everybody up. And by the end of it, you know, you just wanted to go and invade a foreign country. Right and we were literally waiting to like march off and storm the beaches. And instantly the Facebook analog research laboratory, which was a sort of the in-house propaganda arm that had all these cool design posters and stuff printed, you know, posters of Cartago de Lundest with like a Roman centurion's helmet on it. And, the, and they were just paper everywhere. And they instantly all got stolen. I, I was going to steal one myself and I'd managed to do it before they all got stolen. But I do have a photo of one. But yeah, that was the, the feeling internally. And it's weird because people then ask me like, so then what happened? What did you do? Oh, he, so he declared a lockdown. So lockdown was a Facebook tradition going back to the early days where he would like practically lock the doors to the house and saying, nobody's leaving until we fix this. And so he announced there'd be weekend meal service. And, you know, we're, it's basically 24-7. Just improve Facebook so that we fend off this threat. And whenever I came in, you know, I was as I was as into it as everybody else. I came in on a Sunday. And I had to f- look to find parking in the parking lot. On Sunday, the parking lot was Holy full. Holy cow. Yeah, and then just out of curiosity, I got back on the 101 and shot south and got off on Shoreline and went to Google just like out of curiosity, right? <laughs> just so it's like... Uh, I remember this on the right, right, and the parking lot was empty. And it was like, aha! I see who's playing to win here. <laughs> and it was like, aha, well. So, you know, Google the Land as it were. Yeah. So.
0: What aspects of Facebook's culture, do people broadly misunderstand?
1: Oh, the first one is the money, right? They think, you know, the average schmo looking at tech thinks that Zuck or the company is about money and revenue and monetizing your data. That can be like the furthest thing from the truth, right? I'm sure it's changed somewhat now that we're a public company and like Facebook at least, or Zuckerberg has to at least vaguely think about quarterly earnings and stuff. So I'm sure he thinks about it more than he used to. But at the time, you know, ads, was like in a ghetto. We were like in the most remote part of the building, way away from Zuck and his office, right? Which is on Facebook's campus, geography is meaningful if you're close to Zuck, because he's kind of a micromanager. It means that he cares about the product in a deep way. And if you're not, then it means he doesn't, right? And so we were far away from Zuck, couldn't get his intention and priority on things. So yeah, the company, I mean, he said it in the S1 and nobody believed it because it sounds naive. And again, this is part of the reason why I wrote Chaos Is Like, you'd understand these geeks actually believe what they're saying. You think it's like some soundbite? It's like, no, 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 which makes them way more dangerous, actually. But he said it in the S1, we don't build products to make money, we make money to build products, right? That was the priority inside Facebook. And I don't think that's ever changed in a deep way. Ads exist as a necessary evil to pay for things, but it's not the goal of the company. It's not the priority of the company. That's not how they think about the world. And so I think that's one thing that the outside world gets deeply, deeply wrong. And again, and as I warned in my book, that makes the company even more dangerous, right? Because, you know, a greedy businessman who wants cash, that person is very rational and understandable and predictable. But uh, you know, a prophet of a new religion, along with their, you know, the religious army of cultists that they have, I mean, who knows what that person's going to think or do.
0: <laughs> what, what is the goal of the company?
1: I mean, it's, I think it's encoded in their, in their original founding, you know, mantra, a more open and connected world. I mean, I think Zuckerberg and, and that executive, you know, staff... Wants to make the entire world stare into a Facebook property and be at the center of how humans communicate with each other Whatever that might be whether that's, you know Basically an instant messaging product like whatsapp whether that's a vehicle for personal Self-actualization and narcissism like Instagram whether in the future. It's finally the time for virtual reality and it's oculus. Whatever it is Facebook wants to be at that exchange between technology and human social life. That is the goal
0: What are your personal critiques of the way Facebook builds products?
1: I think they can be criticized for being a little bit quick to ship, like shipping a kind of half-assed, half-baked product and just throwing it over the wall and seeing what happens and then fixing along the way. I think they can be very aggressive about shipping things in their most you know aggressive, you know, sort of market penetration. Oriented type product and then when it doesn't quite work out they lose interest in it after six months and forget it If you look at for example the Cambridge Analytica scandal which can be its own separate podcast episode I'm very skeptical of most of the claims in Cambridge Analytica And in fact, I think they're totally overblown in terms of their impact on our political system, right? But I think in terms of one thing you can critique Facebook out of that and why it happened was you know they shipped this thing called Facebook platform back in the day, which most of us have probably forgotten, but back in the day, remember, there used to be like an integration with Spotify and you'd listen to a piece of music at Spotify and it would appear in your newsfeed and you'd annoy all your friends because you listened to that one song 12 times. And the idea was to like interject Facebook with all the stuff you do on, on the internet and have it be kind of the social layer around everything. That was the plan anyhow. Didn't really work out, right? Adoption wasn't great. People got annoyed by a lot of it and they had to tune down its distribution and feed which basically called the product, right? But they shipped it with pretty loose restrictions around what apps and developers could do on on the platform, right? Basically, anybody, any developer, like anybody, you, me, anybody can go and get a self-service app ID and launch an app on Facebook. And if you convince enough people to use it, millions of Facebook users would be using your app and potentially opting into having their data used in all sorts of ways, right? And Facebook launched that way to be super aggressive to get people to adopt it and then kind of forgot about it and left the barn door open. And when Cambridge Analytica, which was obviously a shady company, I don't think anybody would debate that, came along and tried to exploit that loophole they were very slow to react to it, right? So I think that that's certainly something that you can criticize a company for. They should have cut off Cambridge Analytica very early on. The moment they saw anything was going, that they were doing anything weird, and they noticed it early on, they should have instantly blown them out of the water and, and cut them off, but they didn't. So I think that's that's a real criticism.
0: Another element I like about your book is, you know, in recent years, we've really seen such attention being drawn to the tech companies from you know, media outlets, they just, they're just chomping at the bit to to report on these tech companies. And like yesterday I was reading the, there's a recent Wired piece about, I think it was called like four years inside Google's toxic something, whatever. And you know, you, you read something like this and this is actually from Wired, yeah. and so you, but you you read it and it's like a you know there's a lot of anecdotes there's a lot of stuff that's like definitely factual in there, but you still wonder like is this an accurate perception like is this an accurate retelling of what they are retelling you know is Google really like you know falling apart at the seams the way that they portray it and is this the, like how to what extent are they selectively cherry-picking stuff to make it look like this culture is just falling apart
1: right
0: and i you know i spend my days talking to engineers that work at these companies and the difference between what i hear from these engineers and what i hear from these kinds of stories is often just so dramatic when i read your book i felt like it was an honest retelling i felt like it was a consistent retail was a retailing that was consistent with the actual engineers that I interview. Right. So how is this disjunction going to be resolved? And and, I mean, do you share my confusion at the the kind of reporting and, and the, the just the strange lens through which technology is being portrayed these days?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I'm not going to comment on the Wired piece, a because I haven't read it begin to end, and then two, obviously, I, I write for them, and so I don't want to comment on ah, that okay. another person. But I, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, I write semi regularly, now more semi than regularly for, for Wired, but but I, I think your broader point still holds, right? Which is that there seems to be a major disconnect between how tech is portrayed, even in relatively tech centered or friendly media, versus the reality of what goes inside those companies. Yes, I think that's absolutely true. And I think as one of the few people who's, you know, worked in technology companies and also has gotten paid to write stuff. There aren't that many. That Venn diagram intersection is relatively small. I think part of the reason why I wrote Chaos Monkeys and why I have you know, a small sort of you know, intermittent career in journalism is to try to close that delta. Because I think the outside world doesn't understand the tech world very well. And I think Journalists I mean I've gotten to trouble in the past for criticizing tech journalists, so I wanna not rekindle those fires. But I think a lot of journalists not all. Hey, okay. you're talking to a tech journalist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, right. Not not all. I mean there certainly I, there are some very good tech journalists that, that you know I read on a regular basis. But I think broadly it is the case that There is a difference of two cultures, right? There's this famous speech that C.P. Snow gave in the 50s about the two cultures like humanities versus sciences, right? And it's a famous speech. You can go back. It's on wiki, whatever. And it's just there's just a different way of looking at the world, right? And I'm not saying it's exactly analogous to that split, but there's a split here that, you know, what am I talking about? Here's one thing. There's two types of people in the world. You either hear about a piece of new technology that you know is innovative and foundationally changes something about how the way the world works, and you either reflectively say, "Fuck yeah, foot to the gas, like let's just see how far this goes," or you say, "Oh no, 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 let's hit the brakes, precaution. Let's see what you know. Let's, let's let regulation catch up to it." And I think that, for example, the difference in that answer is part of the difference between the engineers, the product managers, the actual practitioners inside tech, and the journalist class who comments on them. They have very different attitudes of like the average techie thinks technology is inherently good and that you should do technology for technology's sake and if you break a few eggs along the way to mix a bunch of metaphors here then that's kind of just the way it goes and i think journalists are like no like i think for many tech journalists they they feel i mean it's clear from their writing that they feel that they're in the same relationship with tech companies in some sense that you know, tech journalists during the financial crash were with the, the banks, right? We're here to sort of right. criticize, right. to shed light on this murky world and to stand as the public's advocate or something. This sort of, I mean, to be honest, it's kind of a savior complex that they have towards these tech companies, right? Their attitude is not, hmm, there's all this weird shit going on and there's a lot of weird shit going on, that's for sure. And I'm gonna I'm going to try to figure it out and explain it to somebody who doesn't live in it. Like, I don't think that's the attitude that most of them have. Most of them have the you know, journalist is hero, you know, little press hat sitting there trying to get to the bottom of what's going on and then get the juicy anecdote from some disgruntled employee and weave some narrative around it that, that paints it as if Google, which is almost worth a trillion dollars, and I'm sure the stock has been up 20% this year or whatever, you know, is falling apart, <laughs> which obviously it isn't, right? And there's actually no real threat. Like I, I'm constantly chiding people who are like predicting the demise of Facebook. It's like, you realize, oh, Facebook seems so out of touch. Like, no, they're not out of touch. They're looking at the usage and revenue dashboards, right? right? Exactly. And they don't see it crashing, right? So like, I think it's funny because Here's the other thing about journalists, and they seem so unself-aware often that like they criticize you know Facebook for promoting qu- this culture of like fake news of no consensus truth, but they themselves get as fooled by their own spectacles as anybody else. Like they, <laughs> you know, they're like, how can Facebook survive the negative media cycle, right? And they announce results, and the stock goes up five percent, and they're just like gobsmacked. It's like you realize that this little story you're weaving has very little to do with any actual reality. <laughs> Whatsoever, but that's the only reality they see, right? That's they have no reality check on their claims about the world, right? Like scientists do an experiment and like, oh shit, the theory is wrong, right? Or a product manager tweaks a thing and does an AB test and oh shit, usage is down, like, but there is no such thing. There is no reality check, right? So that you, and you can swirl in this like spectacle forever and then just not understand that in fact, you've just diverged from the truth. And so I think that happens a lot in the case of tech journalism. And, it, and it's, it's a shame because I think there are real issues. I mean, the, the journalists are not totally wrong. I think tech will cause some disruptions that have negative externalities without any question. But yeah, I do think that. I mean, the other thing, and I, you know, I hate to say it, and again, journalists always hate when you say this because it sounds like such a dick thing. But none of them have ever worked in tech. Like, they, like like they're like, oh, but you only spent two years at Facebook. Yeah, that's two years more than like your entire class put together. <laughs> like, sorry, you have never sat in a product manager's seat and been given a mandate. Look, here's a chart. Make this shit go up in the next six months and like do it. And there's like a hundred trade-offs and limited resources and so many engineers and a bunch of political shit going on. How do you make it happen? They've never done that. Almost nobody in that world has ever done that at all, ever. Right? And the fact that they haven't done that, I, I'm sorry, it's a real limitation. Like what other industry hires that way, right? Would VC hire somebody with absolutely zero background in the thing they're covering or talking about? Obviously not, right? And yet somehow in journalism, like I've seen the backgrounds of some of the journalists that are covering the company. It's like, oh, you know, an English degree from Cambridge. So like, well, that's great, but. <laughs> so yeah, I think that's, and again, it's one of these things you can't really say because you just sound like a dick but it's true
0: <laughs> well, and the other thing is the people working at these tech companies often feel as bamboozled by where the product is going and the effect it's having on society as the rest of us that includes like the ceos they're like holy cow this thing is going crazy like Mark yeah, Zuckerberg yeah. probably wakes up every day and is like I cannot believe this thing is still going. That's true. Wait, that, what the heck
1: is this? What have I created? Yeah, you no, I, th- yeah, I think that's, so that's one critical. Not in a bad way, right. just like, wow, this is a force of nature. Yeah, no, I, I think, so that, that's after having all these critiques of journalism, let's get back in and, and the good graces and say, this is where I think journalists also get it right, that I think, not just Facebook, a lot of tech companies are not very self-aware. And this is a definite very real criticism that journalists are totally right when you 're sitting inside and this is, this was true even in two thousand and eleven i 'm sure now it was like it 's even worse when you 're sitting inside MPk Menlo Park, right the main campus right and you basically live there, you eat three meals there, everyone you know works there you 're on Facebook eighteen hours a day right because a lot of the work of Facebook is through their own private internal Facebook whatever Facebook at work it 's very easy to lose sight of the outside world and understand that the mission of Facebook and all the all the behind the scenes thing the huge security teams dedicated to catching you know, child predators or illegal drug sales going on messenger or whatever, like the, the outside world doesn't see that. You see that, of course, and you know all the things the company does to try to secure it as much as possible. You often don't realize that yes, that, you know, what is, what would be like literally a one or 2% thing inside Facebook is still to the outside world, a big deal. Right? So like take examples, like some of the things that Facebook's been implicated, like the Myanmar and the Rohingya, you know, the, some of the ethnic minority, ethnic cleansing or displacement or whatever you want to call it, right? You know, I'm sure nobody at Facebook could even you know, put their finger on a map of where that was going on as it was happening, right? Because again, <laughs> here, here's one of the difficult things about commenting or writing about a company like Facebook not having worked there, I think, is that you're not used to opening dashboards you know, there, are, there are where things are are denominated in units of billions, right, billions, billions and billions of user actions, billions and millions of users. The scale is just tremendous, which is amazing. I think I, a lot of the people, if you ask Facebookers or at least once I've asked, like, you know, you've been here six years, you can, you can easily get a job doing something else while you're there. Well, the impact I have is amazing. Right? Like I launched this thing and even a failed Facebook product has 100 million users. Right. Like there's just there's just no other company where you could really do that. Right. But the flip side of that is, it's very difficult to see things coming, right? And it's very, I think it's very easy for outsiders to say, how did they not see that in Sri Lanka or whatever, you know, Facebook was being used by some bad faith actor to do some nasty thing? How could you not see that? It's like, I mean, do you realize that Sri Lanka is like 0.5% of Facebook usage, right? For, for that to even come up on anybody's radar, like it, it was just impossible, right? Like I had numerous anecdotes of like, weird shit going on inside the ads team or ads targeting that I just like huh I had no idea people did it on Facebook right I can give you one anecdote I mean it's kind of ancient but one of the first products I launched is what's called likes and interest targeting so you can target ads by things that you've liked or interacted with right frankly it's not very good targeting but it's still there right and it programmatically goes through things you've interacted with and then semantically tags those actions so like if you like a page about you know BMW Automobiles, then you'll be classed into BMW and maybe fancy automobiles and whatever right and it's just a way of Targeting people that have interacted with that. So we were working on the first time So initially it was mostly page likes right and so I'm like, huh And then we were debating various ways of semantic tagging this and that and I just wanted to get a feel for like What are people liking on Facebook? Like just what's the thing? So I ran a query in which I got like the top hundred thousand or something most like pages on on Facebook and it was this massive list you know, it was some like Hive or Hadoop query where it just shit out this, you know, several thousand line document. And I was just flipping through, it, and of course, you know, cajillion languages. I speak Spanish, right? So I noticed a lot of the Spanish ones. And as I got down to some of the, you know, high, but not super high, there was what were apparently the first lines of lots of jokes. And I was like, what the fuck? Like jokes about Argentinians or some like salty joke about divorced women or whatever, right? You know, jokes, right? street joke type thing. I'm like, what the hell is going on? And so I would like cut and paste the page name and went to the page on Facebook and I'm like, oh. So apparently at the time, I'm probably doesn't happen anymore. In Latin America, for whatever reason, people would find like a funny joke and because they didn't understand what pages were supposed to do, they'd create a page about that joke. <laughs> and then like, it. and then pages would get a lot of traffic inside feed. And so someone would see, a page with a you know with the joke like literally in the page title. Go to the page and see the punchline and then like it, oh, oh. and then it would be distributed in their feed and then it would go viral because it was a funny dirty joke, whatever, right? And so, and then so there was some joke again about you know whatever. Brazilian grocery stores, whatever, it's like some dirty joke thing. And then those are being sucked into the targeting engine. And obviously, semantically tagging random dirty jokes, God knows what the hell that thing would output. And then that person was associated with that thing. And so, therefore, we get targeted with that. It's like, oh my God. But how would I have known that in Latin America, page like pages were like this joke thing that, like, that's how it was being used? That's just one example. And I'm sure there's like a thousand Easter eggs kind of buried inside weird things at Facebook because it's just. People don't understand, Like, if you, if you come up with a solution for a problem in Facebook, is it gonna work in you know, Amharic language in Ethiopia? Is it gonna work in this subcase and in that subcase? If it doesn't, then you're not really solving the problem. And to really solve it for the entire globe would stretch the resources even of Facebook. And so that, I think that's one of the things that I think people don't quite realize with Facebook. Quite, I mean, it's, it's basically a quarter to a third of the internet outside of China. That's what Facebook is, right? And it's, yeah.
0: As a programmer, you think in objects. With MongoDB, so does your database. MongoDB is the most popular document-based database built for modern application developers and the cloud era. Millions of developers use MongoDB to power the world's most innovative products and services, from cryptocurrency to online gaming, IoT, and more. Try MongoDB today with Atlas, the global cloud database service that runs on AWS, Azure, and Google Cloud. Configure, deploy, and connect to your database in just a few minutes. Check it out at mongodb.com/atlas. That's mongodb.com/atlas. Thank you to MongoDB for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. There was an episode of This Week in Startups fairly recently where you were on it. And oh, God. You've
1: done your homework. Yes. it was.
0: That episode was so good. I, I mean, I, I've listened to, I think, each of the
1: episodes that you've been on
0: okay. on that show. Wow. I, I'm a huge fan of This Week in Startups. I love that show.
1: Jason's a funny guy. Yeah, yeah. I mean,
0: that guy is, he is such a good podcaster. I, I mean, you guys have a good, you guys have a very good rapport. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: not our first rodeo. I think I've been down there at least three or four times. At no, least, yeah. I mean, he.
0: I found out about your book. I think I first heard about it on, oh, great. His, on his podcast way back. He did a great interview with you because he's got this kind of literary bent to him as well. I mean, he
1: started life as a journalist, right? Right,
0: exactly. Yeah, yeah. But you guys had this episode about where you were talking about Libra. It was just very
1: funny because he owns at Libra. Right, right, right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> this whole is <laughs> <minute's> so funny. <laughs>
1: Yeah, Jason has his finger in so many pies. Like, yeah. how did he end up owning that domain? Whatever. Right. <laughs>
0: but you had a pretty interesting point, which I think has a lot of truth to it, which is the idea that Facebook's pursuit of this Libra cryptocurrency effort, whatever it pans out into, whether it turns out into a nothing bar or, or it turns into something significant, is that it, it, it does represent some ambition that yeah. Facebook has in, in the company. How would you a- contrast that ambition with perhaps what you see in other top companies.
1: Again, going back to your earlier question about what drew me to Facebook early on, I think one of the things was, was their ambition, right? When they thought, you know, and sometimes it seems, it comes off as comical, but when they, you know, when they have a messaging product, we're gonna have like the biggest messaging product in the world. When we have a payments thing, it's gonna become the new currency, right? It's gonna replace the American dollar or something. It's always this sky ambition, which is great, right? Which is really great. And, you know, I had feared, I, I was feeling, the interesting thing about why I think Chaos Monkey is interesting is that it captured that period, that transition between when Facebook went from, you know, big startup, like it still felt very startup-y when I joined, like it's, it you know, I was the first product manager in ads targeting. Like the company was already making almost a billion dollars a year, was a year away from the IPO, and there had never been like a targeting roadmap. <laughs> like no one had actually sat down and said, what should we build to target ads? It just had never happened. The engineers had just built whatever, Right. And so it's just incredible that that late, they were still doing it. So, but but watching the company go from that to politics, that's the bad side, good side, more strategic, long-term planning. Like we're going to do this over the course of a year, right. Versus like, Oh, just ship this shit and see if it works. So that was interesting to see. But I think you also saw the beginning of a little bit of complacency set in, right? Like, and certainly people that stayed there longer than me that I'd still talk, talk with off the record about like, Hey, how's it going inside the company and whatnot. It seemed like they weren't necessarily inventing the future in the way they used to, right? Like, remember, they, used to, they were the first one that had, like, uploaded video, photo tagging. Newsfeed was an invention that they came up with that was horribly controversial at the time. People hated it when it came out. And yet it seemed like they had a special creative development lab where they had, like, really good designers and product managers trying to come up with new apps. So they, they launched, like, a Snapchat Clone and like a flipboard client forget their names, but they're all forgotten basically sure. and like they just weren't it felt for, Like they weren't creating on the user facing side. like the ad side was doing a lot of innovation User facing side didn't seem like it was coming up with radically new stuff And I kind of feared like what if they just stopped making the big bets, right? And then yeah, the Libra thing and again, I'm not a crypto expert. I can't really handicap its chances in the wider crypto world But if it becomes something yeah, to me, it's reassuring that they can still take those risks because look Again, another heretical thing to say, but all this scrutiny they're getting from regulators, either in the US or in Europe, like at the end of the day, none of that really matters. <laughs> like I don't think that's really gonna fundamentally change Facebook's prospects in any real way. It's gonna fill the media cycle or whatever, but it, like who cares? But I think if Facebook stopped taking the big risks, then I think that actually is an existential that's an existential risk because there's no I mean, there's, funny, there was this thing called the Little Red Book, which you can actually Google it, that it's parts of it are online. The designer who made it is part of his portfolio. I mentioned it in the book. So somewhere in the beginning of, I think, 2012, we all got to work and there was like, literally like Mao's Little Red Book, you know, the famous book that he distributed. there's a Little Red Book on our desks. And, you know, it was a lot of corporate propaganda. It was produced by the same, I think, analog research lab that produced the posters, right? And on the final page, was this sort of memento mori. It was a black page with white text that said, you know, if we don't invent the next big thing, our competitors will. And the internet is a cruel place. You don't even leave ruins. And that's it. That's how the book ends. <laughs> and so you, you can find that online, by the way. Just look up Little Red Book Facebook and you'll find it. And so I think that, that sort of Roman sort of feeling of history and of inevitable decline is something the company was always very aware of. And so I think they... They've tried warding that off in various ways. One, acquiring you know, obnoxious startup founders like me <laughs> for a while, I think that was part of their plan, to try to hybridize the entrepreneurial DNA with the, the bigger company DNA, which I don't think worked particularly well. But And now I guess it's, yeah, it's betting big on crypto. I mean, you know, there's, there's other reasons you can guess as to why they got into crypto, right? I mean, I think messaging is obviously the future for Facebook in many ways. And there isn't a lot of history of companies monetizing messaging via ads, right? They're kind of intrusive. In the case of WhatsApp, you don't actually get a lot of data because we can't actually read the messages due to end-to-end encryption. So I think the part of the push for the crypto thing is just becoming a payments platform to monetize the messaging side of Facebook, right? Which is very similar to what WeChat does. But yeah, so yeah, I think, yeah, I was heartened in a way that Facebook is still willing to roll the dice. I mean, we'll see, of course, if it actually becomes the world's reserve currency.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Since you left Facebook, you have become... A writer? A journalist? What do you I continue, guess, what do? I guess. Yeah, continue? what do I do? I
1: know people ask, me, what do I do? And I, I wish I knew. Yeah, no, well, so, yeah, I mean, I wrote this book and it did well and whatever. And then I have a semi regular, or used to have a semi regular column at Wired, written for Guardian, Washington Post, this and that. Tweet a lot. Working on book two and thinking about, you know, Substack, the company Substack that does using. Yeah, yeah, they're getting pretty big. I, I know the founders, they went through YC. And I'm sort of on there and they've been pushing me forever. In fact, if Hamish, the founder or the CEO, reads this, he's probably going to nag me to start. A, I've been thinking about starting you know, the newsletter in a more serious way. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm also thinking about maybe going back to tech potentially. But, you know, this, this business of being a blue checkmark guy who comments on things. Like, yeah, I think
0: so. Here, here's, the thing.
1: here's what I think you should do.
0: Not to not to be your. your OK, let's hear No, your your me, tell me, tell me, tell driver. me, tell me, tell me. I think you can do both. I think it's sort of like I don't know if you've ever heard like this Warren Buffett quote but he says like I like being a businessman because it makes me a better investor and I like being an investor because it makes me a better businessman. Ah. I think that's what it is with your right. Like you should yeah. keep writing. Maybe yeah. Should, I really think you should start a podcast yeah. and just do it concurrently with your business work and w- whatever you end up doing entrepreneurially or.
1: No, I think that's right. It's funny. I was complaining to my ex that the second book isn't going as quickly as the first one and I was getting bogged down. She's like, yeah, you know why? Cause the book isn't about you. <laughs> that's why <laughs> it's ah. like you're such a narcissist. <laughs> it's not about you. And so it's not going as quickly. So if you made it focused or if your future book were about you, you'd get more focused on it. So she might be. Writing. I think you're probably really right about that, actually. Yeah, and I'm not one of the. Like, I feel I feel illegitimate when I write about things that I don't ne- deeply know about, right? Like I've done a few reported pieces and I've done a few columns on domains that I don't consider myself an expert in. And I get this terrible sort of imposter syndrome feeling of like, I don't really know what the fuck I'm talking about. And, and I, I, I particularly hate it. I mean, everyone gets that to some degree, but I particularly hate it because I often trash people who comment about things I do know something about or feel I know something about, like ads, data and privacy, things that I've actually worked in and understand. And like, I see them writing about it and like, no, this is wrong, no, this is just like patently false. And so I'd hate that to happen to me. And so I've done some pieces on like autonomous driving. I did one on like deep fake technology. And like, yeah, I was, it felt kind of deeply, I mean, I, I consulted people in the space after the fact, so I don't think I stuck my foot in it in a deep way, but it was still this deeply uncomfortable feeling of like, do I really know what the fuck I'm talking about? And so, yeah, I think I, I need to write about things that I'm personally involved in. Otherwise I just can't do it.
0: Do you still spend a lot of time? doing disaster prepping. Oh.
1: <laughs> you mean- uh, yeah, so, God, I don't know how that fucking meme has been associated with me for so long. It's not totally wrong. So, okay, look, a little bit of bio, particularly if any of your listeners read my book or follow me on Twitter or whatever. So I Chaos Monkey's the book was written up in the Northwest in what's called the San Juan Islands, which is this chain of islands that almost no Americans know about between Vancouver and Seattle. It's very beautiful, very kind of remote. And on a whim, I bought you know, a few acres of land up there right before the book came out. And then I've been homesteading it, by homesteading it like, you know, putting in a well, putting in an off-grid solar system, setting up structures of various sort, you know, like a pioneery type thing, which I know sounds all very, you know, Oregon Trail and all very weird, but it's actually in, you know, the rural West is not that unusual. A lot of people, stole a lot of vacant land. You just buy land. You put a caravan or a yurt on it, and then, you know, you work, and over the course of five or six years, you build a house slowly, and, you know, you've got a house and a family and whatever by your 30s or whatever. Like, it's very typical up there, right? Banks give you construction loans to do it. Like, it's it's not that unusual. So on the island, I'm just known as, like, oh, yeah, another guy who's doing the weird land thing. But, like, to the rest of the world, I'm, like, this prepper survivalist or something. And it's just weird. I mean, it... You know, in the back of my mind, and and in in the back of the mind of many people on the island, by the way, right, are like, yeah, what if, you know, things just go sideways on the mainland? What would we do? And so, yeah, there's some thought to that. Like, I I don't think it's crazy to think that in the next 20 years, there's a 5% chance of, you know, a major social crisis of some sort. I could see that happening. So, yeah, there is some element of prepping to it. But... And, you know, for a while, I was really concerned about the automation crisis, putting everyone out of work. I, I've become less alarmist about it, and as I've, the more I've thought about it and talked to people. So I don't think we're going to end up in a totally Elysium-style future. Elysium is that film in which, like, the sure. wealthier are living in a spaceship and everyone's living in some hellscape. I don't think we're going to quite end up there. You read that book, The Road? Yes. Oh Well, you know, actually, no, I've seen the film, which is actually a wonderful film. Yeah. But yeah. yeah.
0: The book's looks pretty good, too. But yeah, I... I I can't remember what, maybe I heard you on an interview or maybe in the book you talk about it, but I was like, well, he'd be all right during the road. I don't know about that. Well, maybe not.
1: (laughs) I mean, I'd be better than your average San Francisco resident if I was in the islands, right? But
0: yeah. Anyway, okay, back to just a a few more questions about about media. So how have audiobooks and podcasts affected the book business?
1: Oh, hugely, hugely. So I'm a big believer in whatever you wanna call it, on-demand audio, whatever it is, that whole, to me, the difference between audiobooks and podcasting and radio at this point doesn't really matter, right? It's just the user experience of it. I think it's a huge thing. I think this is like a mega trend statement, but I think we're becoming more fundamentally oral and tribal cultures, right? Like we're the spoken word and oral communication and very personalized communication is the way forward. And I think if you look at, I'm not a total book publishing expert or anything, but I've kicked around a little bit. If you look at like the digital revenues of big publishers like HarperCollins, which published Chaos Monkeys or whatever, their big growth areas are not Kindle. Kindle sales are pretty flat. I mean, total book and tech nerds have their Kindles, and like that's going to be there. It's not going to go away. But the Kindle isn't killing paper books. Audiobooks are right. Audiobooks are taking off in a huge way. People just do things. They work out. They work. They whatever. That doesn't take one hundred percent of their CPU. They want something in the background, and podcasts and audiobooks are there. And everyone has a network computer in their pocket now, right? That does everything. And so, yeah, I think audiobooks and on-demand audio are, big, are a big thing going forward. There's probably more podcasts than there should be, to be clear. But that said, I don't think podcasts are going away. And I, by the way, like I have as many reviews or more on Audible than I do on Amazon. So it's funny. Like I'm a writer, but I really have listeners. I don't have readers, right? Like I, I'm sure somebody plowed through 500 pages of text of Chaos Monkeys, but I suspect probably most people... And obviously I have a somewhat biased democratic, probably it's probably early adopters and whatnot, but I, more people probably listen to chaos monkeys on Reddit. So
0: what could the rest of the business world learn from Facebook?
1: Oh God. You know, I don't know. It's funny. Like (laughs) when you do a book, right? Like they make you do like the media tour thing. So I did a bunch of like radio, like random radio stations in Atlanta, like, Oh, the small business radio show (laughs) talking to me. And it's like, what lessons do we have from Facebook for like someone who runs a laundromat? It's like, I'm not really sure. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not sure. Facebook is in such a weird business that I'm not sure that there's that many lessons to draw. I mean, the level of focus And mission focus that everyone has like there's definitely a feeling of cohesion inside the company and I think that I mean That's not a lesson really. I mean one of the most alarming things about Facebook I think in the recent past is the number of leaks that have come out to the media right and the fact that people are leaking to Facebook is is a really bad sign because Facebook used to be really tight-lipped and leaks didn't happen But now they do and that's that's not good. Not good in what way? It just shows that there's somebody disgruntled internally or someone has some political acts to yeah, grind. Yeah, but I
0: mean, that the Little Red Book level of tribalism, that's never sustainable. That's Why insanity.
1: Not? I don't know. Yeah, the question is, can you scale it up to 50,000 people? And the answer is maybe no. Well, maybe you have to create... Not a life.
0: chance. We have the cult of Y Combinator breathing down its neck, you know? Right. It's a much more sustainable
1: cult. Maybe, although, I mean, some would claim that it's changed as it's gotten much bigger. I was at Demo Day a couple days ago. And it's very different than when I, when I went through it. It's much bigger. Yeah, you know, that's the whole Dunmar's number thing, right? The 150 people you've got in your head, that's like the basic hunter-gatherer tribe, which we've evolved to kind of keep in our heads. And even when we live in cities with millions of people, we still basically know 100 plus people in our lives. Yeah, it's hard to scale beyond that. I don't know, I mean, look at the Roman Empire, look at, <laughs> look at the US Army in World War II. I mean, there's, other, there's examples of large organizations, but that, you know, those were higher stakes things than right. social networks, so yeah. I don't know that most companies should be run like cults. I don't think they should be, right? Like the reality is that cult-like dedication, the 16-hour days, whatever, work in a domain in which you achieve market dominance very quickly. Like slowing down for six months is the difference between success or failure. That's not true for most businesses, let's face it. And the rewards of getting it right are immense, right? Due to the scaled nature of technology, right? Facebook's Revenues went from when I was there barely a billion a year to what they are now, which is touching 60 billion, right? In the span of five years, right? That's massive growth. Like, what other business grows that fast? So, in that world, I think you can live inside a religious cult and call it a business. I don't think most businesses. I don't think most people want to live in cults either. Right. Yeah. And I don't think most, there's nothing more pathetic than some totally regular company that really doesn't, isn't that cool or exciting and shouldn't inspire that much devotion, trying to get people to, <laughs> to believe yeah, in it.
0: Even who want the religion more than the cult? That's, I guess that's what YC is morally. Like you just go once a week, you have yeah. dinner, Yeah. it has a, you know, cultural air to it. Right.
1: But it has just a set of common values, right? Common values. There's a network there, right? Being a YC alum means something when you meet other YC alums. But you
0: can leave, you can downgrade.
1: You can sort of leave. Yeah, you can choose to not participate and be that that full of a person. I haven't met any YC people who like hated it and wanted to leave it. Right. But yeah, how do you maintain that unit cohesion? It's, It's hard. I mean, humans bond over a common enemy and shared suffering, right? That's what they bond over. And in your average business, you don't really have a lot of that in startups you do all
0: right last question what do you think facebook will look like in 10 years
1: huh good question i mean what's the yogi bear like things are hard to predict particularly the future right i mean extrapolating from media trends like i think messaging is going to be big whatsapp will eventually be bigger than facebook.com or the facebook the app messaging like you know and this is public this is not some brainwave You know, it's just that Zuck says things and, like, nobody believes them or they don't understand the full repercussions of what he's saying. And then, you know, three years later, when it comes true, it's like, oh, what a surprise. You know, he's basically publicly said messaging and privacy are the future. And by privacy, it doesn't mean what most people mean by privacy. What privacy means is private groups, right, administered, you know, locally within that group, not necessarily filtered or or admin by Facebook. And then you know, point-to-point messaging or group messaging inside WhatsApp, which is you know how most people overseas or in, in certain countries, the biggest growth is not Facebook or newsfeed, it's it's WhatsApp, right? That's the biggest growth. So I think that's gonna be big going forward. And no, Instagram's not gonna go away, but I think Instagram is for direct-to-consumer brands, influencers, narcissists of various stripes, right? Who just wanna project a certain thing. And then a lot of advertising revenue is gonna be pouring through Instagram, right? Because it's great, obviously, for e-commerce, for branding, I mean, it's just, it's it's made for advertising. So I think Facebook's gonna become basically Instagram and WhatsApp. I mean, that's gonna take less than 10 years. That's like three to five years. And then Facebook, I mean, I, I don't I actually deactivated Facebook, but as someone who deactivated Facebook, the thing that I miss, I think, are the ones that are gonna become the most critical, which is private groups, interest groups. Like there was a group on my island in the San Juan's that's like that's like the public bulletin board it's the only way to get information about the island and now i don't have access to it and i really do miss it so i think a lot of that is what's going to be facebook in the future and then of course is vr finally here right like i've been anyone who's been in tech for any period of time it, you know it was always the year of vr just like it's always been the year of the desktop and like neither ever fucking happened right and so is vr finally here maybe it is maybe it is and if it is and Facebook actually manages to own that, or at least the social aspects of that, that could be really big. So Facebook might just end up being a VR platform for virtual socialization, WhatsApp for point-to-point messaging, and then you know Instagram for brands, influencers, and in fashion and whatnot.
0: Antonio, thanks for coming on the show. It's been great talking.
1: Yeah, great. Thanks. Thanks for having me.
0: If you want to extract value from your data, it can be difficult, especially for non-technical, non-analyst users. As software builders, you have this unique opportunity to unlock the value of your data to users through your product or your service. Jaspersoft offers embeddable reports, dashboards, and data visualizations that developers love. Give your users intuitive access to data in the ideal place for them to take action, within your application. To check out a sample application with embedded analytics, go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash jaspersoft. You can find out how easy it is to embed reporting and analytics into your application. Jaspersoft is great for admin dashboards or for helping your customers make data-driven decisions within your product, because it's not just your company that wants analytics, it's also your customers. In a recent episode of Software Engineering Daily with TIBCO, we talked about visualizing data inside apps based on modern front-end libraries like React, Angular, and Vue.js. If you want to check out that episode, it's available on SoftwareEngineeringDaily.com. You can also check out JasperSoft for yourself by going to SoftwareEngineeringDaily.com JasperSoft and finding out about Embedded Analytics. Thanks to TIBCO for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily.